to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Toby Cadman, co-founder and head of chambers, Guernica 37 International Justice Chambers. Our conversation focuses on the Egyptian judicial and prison system and the continuing crackdown on human rights activists by the government of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Toby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Bill. Pleasure to be here. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about the death last year of Mohamed Morsi, the democratically elected president. He was toppled in a military coup in 2013, and he collapsed in a courtroom. Agnes Kalimar, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions, she concluded in November of last year that President Morsi's death, quote, could amount to a state-sanctioned arbitrary killing. He was denied medication in detention. Now, the manner of his death was a case your law firm took up. What's happened since? Well, just sort of going back to the, the circumstances leading up to his death. So we were, um, we were instructed um, sometime before, and I was in close communication with his son, Abdullah, who also uh, tragically died in mysterious circumstances too, um, First of all, we were asked to look into his conditions of detention, and we made a number of applications to the UN Special Procedures um, at that time, um, requesting independent uh, medical examination. Um, we, we raised the alarm that there was concerns already at that stage as to his state of health, and reminding um, the authorities that uh, to to withhold or to prevent medical treatment uh, to persons in detention can in some circumstances amount to to torture. And so the the Egyptian authorities were already on notice that um, their conduct was under scrutiny. Um, and then, of course, um, Special Rapporteur Agnes Kalamar quite rightly said, uh, as you've just quoted, that it could amount to a, a state-sanctioned execution. So... After his death, we were uh, requested to to conduct investigation and prepare a report to be submitted to the UN Special Rapporteur, which, which we have done. Um, we've also subsequently looked into the, the the death of the son Abdullah because after his father was was killed, and and we refer to it as a killing, not dying in prison, because that's what it was. But his son had made some very strong accusations towards the, the, the Minister of Interior and certain other high-ranking officials saying that they were responsible for murdering his father. And then he tragically died um, in what has now been um, seen to be a very suspicious circumstances. And so we're also uh, investigating that and we have presented uh, information in relation to that to the UN as well. The difficulty we have, obviously, is that um, Egypt, whilst being a signatory to to many international um, human rights treaties, does not implement them, has no regard for them. Um, And as it is not a uh, a state party to to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, we can't take the case to the International Criminal Court. And so... in terms of criminal accountability for what is a state-sanctioned murder, 
of a former and the only democratically elected president, the, the, the routes to justice are somewhat limited. Um, having said that, we haven't given up and we work closely with the family in ensuring that there is uh, accountability for, for, for both deaths. Um, and so the, the work continues. We have compiled a number of reports, evidence from, from different sources um, that have been submitted to the UN and also we have uh, given a very clear indication that we would be pursuing this in, uh, in the national courts under universal jurisdiction outside of Egypt and that's, that's effectively what we're doing. And the family, you mentioned the mysterious death of his son. Is the family at, at any risk now? This, this is a very sinister uh, situation that they face. Absolutely. So, so you have um, Abdullah, who suffered a cardiac arrest um, at, at a very young age, and the circumstances in which he was effectively delivered to, to a hospital uh, and then tragically died uh, hours later. You also have his brother, Osama, who is still in detention, and there were concerns that certainly uh, alarms were raised last year uh, over his health as well, which of course has been aggravated by the the pandemic um, and the Egyptian authorities being completely unable to control um, and provide a, a safe and secure environment for detainees. So you have that for Abdul, uh, for Osama as well. There is, of course, the, the family generally uh, come under persecution, targeting by, by the regime. Um, we have alerted the US authorities because two, two members of the family are US citizens, and so they have a particular responsibility towards them. But what we've tried to make very clear is that the family, um, the surviving family, have no intention to, to engage in politics in this current environment if ever. Um, and so we have made pleas repeatedly for effectively for them to be just left alone to, to lead their lives um, in, in peace and security. Regrettably, we know what the environment is in Egypt. It is getting worse um, by the day. And so the, the, the risk to them continues. Um, earlier this year, they, the family had decided to set up a foundation um, in the name of their father. And that foundation was established. Um, I sit, sit on the board as a legal advisor to, to that foundation. And of course, what we are trying to do is to use uh, what former President Morsi tried to do as a, as a, as a springboard to, to look at issues of democracy and corruption around the world, to sort of try and use almost like a, a, a positive effort uh, to continue and to to ensure that his reputation and his his legacy is left intact, because whatever people might think of his politics, the one thing that people cannot dispute is that he was the first and only democratically elected president of Egypt, um, and that his intentions were honourable, um, and so that's what the family is trying to do. But it's you know they're doing that in very difficult circumstances. Mm. Now, President Sisi has said there are no political prisoners in Egyptian jails, just what he calls terrorists. What's your response to that uh, claim? Well, I think, Bill, you and I know that that's generally the response of a dictator, is that you, you don't have political prisoners, you only have terrorists. Um, I mean, it is a, a ludicrous um, suggestion to make. 
I mean, it's not the first time I've heard it, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last time uh, we hear it. Um, when, when individuals are arrested and thrown in jail without charge and are held for, for months, if not years, then that is a fairly clear indication um, as to whether uh, they are responsible for having committed any criminal offences. Because if, if these are indeed terrorists, if these are individuals that have uh, engaged in acts of violence, then they should be brought before the courts and processed. If they've committed offences, they should be prosecuted, convicted and sentenced accordingly. That's how a system based on the rule of law functions. But what we see is individuals like journalists. We still see uh, an Al Jazeera journalist who, who has been in detention without charge um, for, I think, more than three years. We I acted for... Um, Shorkan, the the photojournalist who who was detained for a similar length of time, uh, I think maybe even even five years. So, the suggestion that there are no political prisoners um, in these uh, in the prisons in Egypt is uh, is laughable. Um, if it wasn't so frightening. And how would you describe the Egyptian judicial system? Well, we were asked um, some time ago. Um, I believe it was in 2018-2019. So we, we had um, compiled a series of reports on the political situation in Egypt. And that was largely in response to um, a, a, another legal group in London, Nine Bedford Row International, that had done a series of reports on behalf of the regime, um, trying to effectively... Um, what the regime was trying to do was to, to, to whitewash what were very serious allegations of human rights violations and human rights violations to such an extent that they, they would constitute crimes against humanity under international law. So what they tried to do was to issue a, a report on the judicial system, setting out the legal framework, the international treaties that they were party to, and to try and suggest that the courts acted independently of the executive. And so we were asked to to compile a, a report effectively in response to that to, to to give a more accurate picture of what the court system looked like for the international community. Um, and so we we um, submitted a, a detailed report which effectively showed that the CC regime had hijacked the courts. It had become an organ of the state and a weapon of repression. Uh, against the political opposition. And so it was quite clear that the courts in Egypt are merely an extension of the executive, have have no independence. There is no concept of a fair trial um, under the CC regime. Um, and of course, that's something that we do see across the globe in autocracies and dictatorships, is that the the, the, the court systems are effectively one of the first institutions to fall uh, when democracy collapses. And so we see that quite clearly in Egypt, and we have seen it for a number of years. So an utterly politicized judicial system and the laws, the anti-terror legislation that has been used to lock up, you mentioned journalists, human rights activists, anyone deemed to be potentially a political opponent. What about these laws? Well, again, we also looked at the legal framework, not just the, the practice, but the laws that are used um, as, uh, as, as a, a weapon of terror. And you know, these are laws that would not stand up to scrutiny in, in any system 
based on the rule of law. They have repeatedly been uh, criticised by the UN special procedures, in particular Agnes, Agnes Kalama, um, through her work. Uh, we have seen decisions against the Egyptian state by the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, with particular reference to these laws. So, again, it is uh, it is laws like this that are that are used as a tool to target the the political opposition and and regrettably the, the law enforcement and the the prosecuting authority all they have to do is is revert back to the law and say we are merely applying the law and it is the law that is the problem it is the law that has uh, these particular legal instruments um, that have removed any notion of what we would consider to be universally protected rights of due process. And as soon as a person is is targeted or labelled as a terrorist or having been involved in terrorist activities, then the threshold for, for evidence is significantly lowered. Um, the burden is shifted and it is effectively almost impossible to, to prove one's innocence when, when one is targeted under such an oppressive uh, legal regime. And the language itself is, is, is deliberately broad and vague, isn't it? It is. And again, you know, that is, that is a tool which is often used where there is no evidence. So you, you, keep, you keep the rules as broad and vague as possible so that there are no real requirements on the prosecution to establish a case. And the, and the court can, can take a very... Uh, I suppose, vague approach to, to any determination of any particular issue. And so it is very, very difficult to, to for defence lawyers to challenge that. I mean, the other issue is that you, you have no real strong defence bar because of the, the culture of fear and intimidation in which these proceedings are run. So, you know, it is, of course, the laws, it is the language of the laws, but it is also the system is set up for there to be no challenge, and you know, it is it is a, in the very traditional sense, a hanging court. I mean, it is it is like the the, the purges of the nineteen twenties. These are not trials. These are not trials that meet any standards. They do not comply with the constitutional protections. They do not comply with the international treaty obligations, and in many respects, they don't even comply with basic criminal procedure which is why you have these special laws that are brought in to, to lower the bar, to make it so much easier for the state. The, uh, the murder student, Giulio Regini, he was kidnapped, tortured and killed in 2016. Italian prosecutors are bringing charges against uh, four high-ranking officers in the security apparatus. The Egyptians will surely just ignore it. I suppose the cynic would say, well, what's the point? What's the point of bringing charges? Well, the point in bringing charges is that the, the Italian authorities have tried to work with the Egyptian authorities since 2016, and um, that has been completely fruitless. And you will, you will have seen some of the statements recently by the Italian authorities effectively saying they have no option other than to, to, to approach it in this way. Yes, they may not get those suspects, those accused before a court in Italy, but it doesn't mean that it is any less significant. It is important to to 
continue the fight for justice for the family because of the circumstances of his of his death. It is important that all of these cases are documented and that there is a process. Whether the Egyptian authorities uh, intend to cooperate or not is is largely irrelevant because uh, obviously if they do cooperate and these four individuals are handed over to Italy, then there will be a trial and there may well be a conviction. If they decide not to cooperate, then it throws Egypt further into the darkness of, of international cooperation and international diplomacy, and, and that is building up. And I know that people are very sceptical that that does not achieve anything, but if we only have to look over the last couple of days, there's been a further resolution adopted by the European Parliament, who are taking a very strong position as far as Egypt is concerned right now. Unfortunately, countries like France, United Kingdom... And the United States have been incredibly weak um, towards Egypt uh, and incredibly weak towards Sisi in, in general. We saw Macron almost embracing um, Sisi recently, which is, which is just absolutely abhorrent. Um, but I think that that process is important. If we, if we look at the response by the Egyptian authorities, that they, they considered that to be uh, an attack on their sovereignty, which again is, is the response of a dictatorship. If the Egyptian authorities feel so strongly about it, they should have taken action. They haven't taken action because they know that responsibility for, for the death of this young Italian PhD student goes right to the very top of the regime. So, so you know, they cannot afford for it to be in front of a, a, a court in Cairo. And so they will just try and uh, block out and put their head in the sand. But it's not going to work because this is, going, this is going to continue. And the Italian authorities will take this as far as they need to. Yes, that allegation that countries are interfering in, in sovereignty. We've seen that with the Saudis uh, as well. I mean, it's an interesting argument, isn't it? That uh, when human rights issues and abuses are raised by outside countries, then this flag is sent up that uh, somehow sovereignty is under attack. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we could pick uh, any one of 10, 15 countries that make the same argument. Um, uh, Russia frequently makes it, Iran makes it, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain. They all advance this argument when the issue is um, the scrutiny of their um, judicial or even their, their, their political system. It is considered to be an infringement on their sovereignty and, and uh, an unlawful attack on their sovereign institutions. Um, and again, um, if the process is being done properly according to the law, uh, what do they possibly have to fear by a UN committee or another state uh, looking into a, any particular situation? So it is, of course, it is the, the knee-jerk reaction of a dictator. You, know, you mentioned uh, President Macron and the Légion d'honneur that's been uh, given to President Sisi. Uh, Again, some might say, well, it's real politique, uh, these foreign uh, powers seeking to gain influence. Uh, here's one way we do it. Give the president the highest award that we can. Uh, when you heard that, what did you do? 
uh, screamed actually. Um, I, I, I was, <laughs> I was appalled by it. Um, I would, that what we've seen, we've seen CC receiving such praise. Uh, it, it, it shows that trade relations uh, and economic stability is is of far greater importance than than human rights, justice, and accountability, and that is really really worrying. Because it's it, it gives them a lifeline. It gives these dictators a lifeline. And you have to ask the question, is, is Macron going to be asking uh, or inviting Bashar al-Assad? Or is he going to be inviting Mohammed bin Salman next for, for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi? So, you know, it is, it is appalling to see a state such as France bestowing such an honour on a man who is responsible for the f- frankly the the entire collapse of a democratic beginning in in a state such as egypt i mean it, it it's almost difficult to know what to say it is so it is so appalling mm, yes from the country that brought us liberty egality and fraternity um donald trump proclaimed uh, cc his favorite dictator do you think that president elect biden will make uh, cc and other middle east Autocrats lament the loss of Trump when it comes to the issue of human rights. Yeah, I think I think they will. Um, I mean, I'm 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 very hopeful that we will see uh, a very different United States um, come the end of January, and let's hope that that can sort of reestablish some some kind of world order. I, I don't, for a moment, think that world order is dependent upon the United States, and that we look. The United States as as this beam of light of democracy and stability, but I think it is important to have a strong, um, stable United States in in the diplomatic world, and and we have lost that. Uh, we've lost it from the United Kingdom as well, and I hope I hope that we will have a change in politics in the United Kingdom as well. Um, but for the moment, I think the U.S. has to reestablish itself. Um, as as a force for good rather than a a force of destruction. Well, you mentioned the United Kingdom, and uh, we too uh, have played not a particularly impressive role in relation to these various Middle Eastern autocrats, and that's an issue here. It it really is, um, and I think the when we look at Egypt. Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, we have played um, an appalling role in ensuring that there is a, a process of, of democracy in those states. Uh, there, there certainly was concern when Bahrain was in front of the, um, the UN Human Rights Council uh, for its universal periodic review just, just a few years ago. And there were a number of very strong sentiments being raised by a number of by a number of Western states, and particularly European states, and and the UK effectively was was alleged to have uh, lobbied those states to to soften their criticism of Bahrain um, because of the relationship between the UK uh, and and the Gulf states. But even even with with Sisi and with the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, I think. Uh, our role has been particularly poor, and I think one of the one of the difficulties that the UK um, faces is because of the the idiocy of the uh, of Brexit um, that 
establishing trade relationships with these uh, dictatorships and autocracies seems to take uh, greater value than establishing the rule of law, um, human rights and democracy. So I think that is that is a failing of the current Johnson administration. Um, I do hope that we will see a Keir Starmer administration. I'm not a supporter of Labour, um, but I would like to see him in power rather than Boris Johnson, because I think that there would be much more focus on the rule of law than what we currently have. Mm, well, we've got uh, a few more years of the Johnson government before that could happen. Human rights abuses in Egypt across the Middle East are rampant. What can you, Toby Cabman, do to change that narrative? And I suppose, what, what can any of us do? Well, I think um, what I can do is the same as what many of us can do. Um, I think it's to, to continue to, to ensure that focus is not taken away from Egypt, um, to ensure that the incidents of violence that constitute widespread systematic human rights violations, that they are properly documented. Um, and I think we have to recognise that um, as I frequently say, we may not see justice today, we may not see justice tomorrow, but but justice we will see one day. And if history has taught us anything, it's that a process of justice and accountability is achievable. It just takes it just takes a very very long time. And um, so I think we have to continue to focus on that. I think the 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 response of the European Parliament, certainly within the last three months, is proof that the situation is changing. There, there is more focus on the human rights and accountability issues in Egypt. And I think that will continue. Um, I think we have to make it very, very difficult for the Egyptian regime to continue as though it's business as usual. And we need to ensure that uh, we all focus on what it is the Egyptian people actually want. Um, and that is a return to democracy and a return to the rule of law. But I think we also need to to not lose sight of the fact that a former president was effectively murdered in a courtroom. Um, and if that had happened in any other part of the world, and if that former president was not uh, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, then I think we, we would have seen a far greater response. And that's wrong. Um, and I think we have to correct that. It's not that we have to support a person's politics in order to take action. Um, we have to recognise that these are that these are violations of universally accepted norms. And if and if we apply a different standard to individuals because we don't like their politics, and then, then that is a very very dangerous and very slippery slope. Toby, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Toby Cadman, Head of Chambers, Guernica 37 International Justice Chambers. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.